Well, I think uh, six o'clock. We'll go ahead and get started. Although I'm sure some uh, some folks will be will be coming in. Uh, I'm really looking forward to tonight making this a, a really engaging discussion. Everybody should feel free to ask questions. I'm absolutely delighted to have here uh, Jaron Lanier um, visiting us from the West Coast. Uh, he's had a busy few days here of talking to a lot of people. Most recently, he just came from Microsoft Research down in Kendall Square. And he uh, was yesterday at the New Yorker Festival doing a lot of talking. And, and the day before that, uh, teaching high school math. Teach you, where, where did you teach in high school In Albuquerque. It's a, straight, it's a long story. But, in yeah. Albuquerque, New Mexico. No yeah. Excellent. Yeah. And uh, he is the author of this, uh, this very interesting, exceptional book, You Are Not a Gadget, which I would highly recommend to folks. Partner architect at Microsoft Research. Innovator in residence at the Annenberg School at uh, University of Southern California. Yeah, that's all true. And uh, a, a composer of classical music. You have a symphony. Yeah, premiering in a couple weeks. Oh, thanks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, if anybody's, it's in Orlando, uh, 22nd, 23. It's kind of cool. So. In Orlando. And uh, widely, I think, considered the father of virtual reality, right? Technology. Um, and a really interesting article in New York Times Magazine a couple weeks ago on education and technology, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, that was that. Does the digital classroom enfeeble the mind? Not my title. Not your title? No. Did you have a title for the piece? The, the way the world works today is if you want to be paid, you don't get to control the title. That's the, and it's reasonable. What title did you say? Well, I don't, I didn't, like, well, it was actually worse. The first, the first suggestion was something like, do computers enfeeble the brain or something? I'm like, ah, I, I like, um, I. There's this little trope floating around uh, that uh, so that technology is kind of sapping our our inner brilliance or something, which is uh, a little unsubtle. Maybe I mean I guess there's a function for crude uh, crude tropes in the world, but that's one I'd rather not be promoting because I love technology. I love computers. I, uh, well, I thought I'd ask you a couple questions, then we'll see what everybody else has, what questions they have. Sure. You know, my, my, my first question is just about, uh, is I guess in a sense, you know, why you wrote the book. Sure. Well, okay, so this, it's, this is a weird one for me because my, my nature is very much uh, um, to be this ebullient promoter and, and you know I just love I love working on technology and I, 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 I've always just enjoyed it and I think my enthusiasm has been infectious uh, for a lot of people actually and I hate being in the position of being a critic it just sucks I mean I'd really rather not do it but what happened you know it's just like it's just this moment when it's got to be done um, the history goes approximately like this and there's no way I can cap I can capture this precisely but Back, um, back in the mid-20th century, starting around 1960, there was a discussion started around, in particular, how computer networks might be architected and how they would affect people. And I was a little young for the first phase of it because I was just born in 1960. But that's when Ted Nelson started on the first plan for how the thing could actually work. Uh, yeah, uh, well, no, Computer Lib was later. This was just his first draft on uh, what I don't know if it was called the Xanadu yet, but whatever it was. And, and he had an idea that was kind of a nice one, I thought, and I still think it's the best one, which is that um, 
he kind of modeled the idea of a, of a computer network. This was before there was the term internet, of course, way before. But he modeled it on, on his notion of what works about America, which I think is a pretty good one, which is that you should have a, a petite bourgeoisie. You should have power and clout distributed enough that democracy can really function. And the way to do that is to give people enough ownership and ability to benefit from information on a computer network that it wouldn't all concentrate at a central server. Um, as had been feared by, say, E.M. Forster and The Machine Stops. Who here hasn't read The Machine Stops? Okay, your assignment. The first thing you do, the first thing you do when you leave this lecture is you go read a short story. This is the same E.M. Forster that did Room with a View and all those, you know, those novels. Read this. It's, uh, it's over 100 years old, and it describes a dystopian world where there's an internet approximately like the one we have today. And this was way a half century before computers. I mean, it's just an extraordinary, well, almost. It's an extraordinary, extraordinary feat of uh, prescience. Uh, maybe the most dramatic one in human history. I mean, it's just incredible. And uh, it captures the whole thing, like all the, you know, getting trapped in stupid standards and having fake friends instead of real ones and all, just all this stuff. And um, there's a big problem with the machine stops, which is the ending. It has this happy ending where the, computer, the internet breaks down. Um, apparently, in the future is run by Twitter or something. And it, it breaks down, and everybody just wanders outside. Yeah, you're, I'm not getting the laughs I would in Silicon Valley. <laughs> no, 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 you, you, did, you got it. It's fine. I, I'll have to tune back into this Cambridge thing. I used to live here. I'll, I'll get there. But anyway, um, the... the um, the happy ending in the machine stops is every, the, the, the internet breaks down, everybody wanders outside, and there's the sun, and they discover true life. So it's a recreation of uh, the Rousseau idea, which I'm, I'm sure is false, which is that there were these good old days before men mucked it up, mankind mucked it up with technology and, and ability. Uh, and I, I don't think that's true. I think that the old world that we um, overcame with better technology was one of increased misery and disease. And, uh, intolerance and horror, and uh, I, I'm sure that both Forster and Rousseau are wrong. But at any rate, um, that that uh, Forster happy ending is sort of a danger because it's it's natural for a sensitive person looking at these things to head in that direction. Um, it happened again fairly recently with a movie called Minority Report that I worked on. I, I made up gadgets for it and stuff, and. Uh, the end, at the end of the movie, there's that Forster Rousseauian ending again, where there's this dystopian world with all these uh, gadgets, and then the happy ending. All the characters are in this beautiful rural place, technology-free, and they find some bit of reality and truth and love and all this. And I, I had this argument with them, saying, like, "No, no, no. We have to put good technology in the happy ending. You can't make the happy ending be anti-tech." But you know, I, I lost that, 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 that uh, conflict. So anyway. Um, uh, Ted Nelson, uh, I think, had the first creative response to that, which is this idea of an online petite bourgeoisie, that you'd have distributed power. And if people had enough power to be actually living off their bits, then they would be able to self-invent. Then they would be able to evolve and change. And there wouldn't be some central authority that gained power by, being, by having more information about them than they had of themselves. And um, that Ted's idea was, to my mind, um, a continuation of a crucial, almost I would call it a sacred bond between technologists and the rest of the world, uh, which is that whenever we screw over one part of life or make somebody's job obsolete or something, the, the, or 
make somebody's job obsolete or whatever it is we might do that might cause someone, something unpleasant for someone, it's our job to come up with something else that'll happen instead that's better. And in the case of um, how people make their way, yeah, exactly. And, and uh, the way that uh, this works as far as the petite bourgeoisie or the middle class is that every time we put um, somebody out of work, like a Luddite in the, in the, in the uh, textile industry, we would create then this higher level job that would be more intellectual. Uh, people would be able to live with less danger, less dirt. Uh, they would get closer and closer to living off their hearts and their minds instead of off their hands and their backs. And that was the progress all the time. Anyway, so that. That, so Ted, Ted was thinking along those lines that what, what a connected world should be for should be for uh, creating the ability for individuals to get wealth and clout and power so that it would be distributed and that would make a good life and a, a democracy possible. So it was a, essentially a middle class idea. Um, I don't what, think he... What happened? Okay, so what happened, and I'm part of the problem. I have to say I made a mistake with this because I... There, there, two, there were two counter-movements that shouted Ted down. And also, I, it has to be said, I wanna, the first thing I want to say is that I love Ted. Ted is a wonderful guy, and he's also an, a somewhat inarticulate and cryptic and goofy and nutty person who's... It's just one of these ironies of history that he was the guy who would be the guy with the most the, the, the most articulate idea about how the net should go was the most inarticulate about his idea. That's, that's what happened, though. And um, Ted's being honored at the Computer Museum in San Jose this Friday, uh, and I won't be able to be there, which really bums me. He's just written an autobiography, which I'm sure is as charming and, and, and difficult as everything is about him. I'm, but anyway, so part of the problem is just that Ted... Ted is not a great communicator, not a great leader, and a very complicated person and not ideal for the role that he might have naturally had. That's just true, and I say that full of love and admiration for him. Um, and I'm, I'm probably understating the case by a few magnitudes. <laughs> it's, pretty, it's pretty intense. And then, uh, but then meanwhile, there were two kind of camps of people who hated what Ted was doing. One was the, the Maoists. So at the, it's hard for us to remember that in the, in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, and particularly in the 70s and 80s in the U.S. academic world, there was this entrenched sort of um, fog bank of Marxist academics who just were really convinced that they, you know, they had a certain view of the world. And a lot of students were attracted to it. And I certainly got the bug. Um, and the way to lose it is to try to live according to it. So what I did with a lot of my friends is we... Uh, uh, we tried living in collective households. Then you learn pretty fast that, you know, maybe not. It's a, it's a hard thing to sustain. Um, and uh, so, you know, you have to learn by doing. Anyway, I remember Marxists at Stanford storming the stage when Ted was trying to describe his architecture, say, you know, with, in the most obscene way, not letting him talk, but literally physically surrounding him, saying, you know, we will not have money in the in the. I mean, we use different terms. There wasn't the internet yet, but I'll just, I'll just use the current terminology because it's the same. So we will not have money in the internet. And um, it's a bad, bad thing. And uh, uh, then, and so that, that was very powerful. And um, I hadn't seen through it, yet, through it yet, and I was still kind of... Um, this attraction of, of the youth... When you're young... Um, Collectivism can seem kind of attractive because uh, you know you don't have as much as older people who've had lives to sort you know figure out what but, to do, and you sort of you, you want that power, and so it seems like spreading it would get you there faster. I think. But, uh, relate for me collectivism with this idea of that 
of the internet that it should be well totally because Ted's idea was this middle class idea where each person like if uh, if somebody does something that somebody else has used so so technically Ted would be opposed to well, in fact, we didn't even agree on files back then. The idea of the file itself was controversial, but in particular, file copying. So in Ted's world, there'd be no copying. There'd only uh -huh. be one platonic copy of everything, and then you could only access it. Huh. And uh, and then you, the, the person, um, if it, if it was control access, and if there was somebody access. alive who owned it, they would be able to charge or not, and then the market would sort it out. And the ideal was that you'd end up with a world where information wasn't free as it came to be called later, but rather information was affordable. And the idea was that in a, in a, in, when information is affordable, there'd be more of it and it would be better than if it's just free. Um, this was demonstrated with incredible power just a few weeks ago by the expose in the New Yorker on the Koch brothers. Yeah. So uh, it turns out that there are these billionaire brothers who have a right-wing idea. And they've been, they were able to sort of buy the blogosphere and buy the Twitter sphere. And, and uh, create this uh, social network for an, a, a rightist cause. And the interesting thing about that to me is that, first of all, I mean, why do you need a middle class for democracy? It's because uh, if everybody's poor, you can buy their votes too easily. I mean, you have to have clout and power distributed. And this was a vivid demonstration of that online, that if you have all these unpaid bloggers, they're just too easily persuaded, because all you do is give a little bit of money to the ones you like, and all of a sudden you can tilt the whole thing. If they were all making a middle class living from blogging, they'd have enough distributed clout that they wouldn't be so vulnerable. And the other thing is that despite all the rhetoric about how the thing's supposed to self-correct, it, it was a traditional journalist who found out about it. I mean, it's not like the blogosphere discovered this was happening to itself. So the point is when you, when you defund everybody and you put all this power and concentrated money in the center, uh, it, it corrupts. And um, the reason I, so this gets to why I wrote the book. Um, I'm at the center. I, I sold the company to Google. I'm working with Microsoft. I, um, I've been very much part of this whole thing. Uh, and I benefit from it. So if I'm wrong, I'm still going to benefit. You know, <laughs> I'm, 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 from, I'm from the tower. And I'm close to, I'm close to, the, I'm close to the, the key servers that make the money. So I'm, I'm on the beneficiary side of this power distribution. And I think it sucks. I just, I just really, and I think um, some people who are benefiting from this intense power, dis power concentration that's being created are the ones who need to speak up. So, but let me, let me get back to the story. I know I'm probably taking more time, but okay. just tell me if it's in, in, no, insufferable, okay? So, so, so one camp that hated Ted was the Maoists, and the other one were the pessimists about human potential. So one thing going on during that time period was something called the human potential movement. And it was pretty hot and heavy around both Stanford and around Route 128 and MIT here. And these were people who believed that there was incredible potential for creative and intellectual and spiritual achievement within people that could be reached in, to greater heights in the future, a sort of um, enlightenment progressivism about the inner nature of the human mind. And uh, I am one of them. I'm still a human potential kind of person. I believe we don't know how much we can be and how much we can do. I, I, I feel that strongly. I've, I've, and, but that's another another tell. But um, so they had generated this reaction of people who thought that they were um, idealists and that it was nutty. And, and so there were there were a lot of people who at the time would say that there's only a tiny minority of humans who have anything to say or do that anyone else cares about. And uh, what we, what the way the future is going to have to be is we're going to have to find a way to sort of tend and care for all of those dull people who'd have nothing to do once the machines get good enough to take care of us all. Um, now, um, there's a great tradition for that idea too, and uh, we, I think uh, Marx might be a good 
a good uh, older point of reference, just as uh, I used Forster before. So Marx was very much writing about technological change. And so Marx imagines this world where he's, he sort of knows what's good for everybody, or there's some institution that does. And there's my favorite passage in Marx is this thing where he's imagining the, this uh, moment after the revolution, and the machines have gotten good enough to take care of everybody. And then what we do is we all lounge about in beautiful lawns, practice archery, and read the classics, which I'm sure is what he would have wanted to do. But it just points out the difference between this. Practice are what? Archery. Archery. Yeah. It, so, so it points out the difference between um, if you have a middle class and people are able to have enough clout to develop on their own, then you don't have some wise person saying, you know, you should practice archery. So, but the, the, the crucial question is how much faith you have in distributed creativity and ability for self-invention. And, um, and, or another potential problem is if you really had billions of people who are fully self-actualized and, and uh, in, intellectuals and creative, would that be miserable? Would we all step on each other's toes and make each other, you know, uh, feel small and, and compete and all that? And I, you know, so there were, there were these, anyway, there were all of these arguments. And, um, uh, those people I never believed. I always felt that, that um, I don't think absolutely everybody is creative enough to do things that other people would care about. Um, but I do think that there's, uh, there's some sort of criticality that mankind achieves. And th we had an empirical test of that, not in this last decade, but in the previous one. In the 90s, when the web first started, um, th this, um, that was unlike the volunteerism of today, which is directed and exploited, that was genuine volunteerism, where there were millions of people who just did stuff online in their own way because they wanted to. And what you saw was this incredible flowering of stuff. I mean, it was just amazing. And I felt that this argument that people aren't good enough or that a lot of people can't be creative at the same time, all, all those arguments just fell away because we saw an active demonstration. And that was a remarkable moment in history because I don't think there had ever been millions of people doing something because it was a good idea without some kind of leader or bribery or, or <laughs> manipulation or something. I, I don't think there was anything like that in, at that level before in human history. So it's like news about human nature. It was just a remarkable moment. Um, anyway, okay, so now let's fast forward to the turn of the century. And um, a lovely, sweet guy who's a friend of mine, Sergey Brin, came up with this idea to impress a girl, or so he says, which is uh, to, to use advertising to, pay, to, to make money from search. And um, search is great. I love the search algorithm. Uh, the advertising thing, I'm a little so-so on. And, and so here's, here's the problem. Um, in, in order, if you, <laughs> if you God, I, uh, I'm trying to figure out. The usual way I talk about this involves some scatological turns of phrase that I don't think will fly in Harvard. So I'm going to try to. Try uh, us. No, no, I'm going yeah. I'm to smooth this out for you. Uh, <laughs> pretend I'm an iPad. I'm censored here. Uh, so, <laughs> um, the um, the uh, the problem is that. Uh, so, let's compare it to the personal computer revolution from the the 70s and 80s and 90s. When personal computers came out, um, the idea was very much in line with this with Ted Nelson's uh, middle class ideal, and that ideal was shared by a lot of the key people who were figures. Uh, in, in creating personal computers, uh, that people should be able to invent themselves and have enough clout to be able to do it, that they shouldn't be uh, 
at a lesser position versus somebody with a privileged computer somewhere. And so by giving, getting everybody a computer, not only was it a good theory, but the interesting thing is that very shortly it turned into good results. We actually did see a lot of people start to make a living by having computers. We did see increases in productivity without, of course, finding increase in unemployment, which is what you want. And we did see this just like betterment. Like it was a remarkable thing. And um, I, you know, I, I think it's wonderful to have ideological notions and to try to change the world and to put the stuff out there. But the key thing is to look at the results. And if it's not working, recognize it. That's, that's very hard to do because you become attached to your ideology. And it's very, very, very hard to see when something isn't working. So we come to this last decade. And so um, the advertising idea is very different because it sets up an entirely different power balance. What it says is, um, I'll give, all right, so I'm going to have a preferred computer that knows more than your computer on the network. I'm going to have the special computer that has information about you that you don't get to see. It's going to direct you to friends and music, and it's going to affect your life. It's going to filter your world, but you don't get to see what that computer thinks about you. Um, you, meanwhile, will benefit because I'll give you some free services. But on the other hand, you pay for that too because under this regime, we no longer value what you do with your heart and your brain. We've broken the bargain that uh, technologists have had for the last century. And instead, we're saying, no, you should give it away, sell the t-shirt or whatever. If it, and I want to get back to that, because that's a very, that well, idea is. We stay with that for a minute. Well, uh, let me just, okay, can okay, I just finish? Yeah, yeah. All right, I'll get, I'll give me a few, or three sentences, and I'll get okay. back to it. And so we end up with this model of how to use computation, where you have these preferred servers that spy on people. The people who actually do this stuff are no longer customers, they're, they're product. You basically, when you use Facebook, you are the product, not the customer. And then the real customer is hidden, just like a political donor has become in the, U in the US. It's like, it's this whole, this ideology that the power is hidden. Abstraction. And, yeah. And so we've, we've entered into this new power structure on all levels, politically and economically and socially, in which there's a network where there's a hidden force that actually directs things. And then people are, and then power is concentrated in this central thing that they direct, which is abhorrent to, to being a good person, you know, I mean, or being a good country. I mean, it's like, it's not America, as I, as I understand America. And this architecture has been replicated, I mean, at the same time that, that Sergey started doing it with ads, which was totally innocent, I mean, he's a great guy, but at the same time he started doing it, some of my other friends turned into quants on Wall Street and did exactly the same thing with finance. And so the, the hedge fund computers and the high frequency trading computers have the same role as a Google or a Facebook. There are these privileged computers that spy on people, pull out money from the system because they have, uh, when you have superior information, you can turn that into money and power. That's, that's how the game works. And are corruptible by influences that you don't even get to see because how, whenever power is that concentrated, that's what'll happen. And um, all right, so, so now getting back to this problem about getting paid or not. So there Hold was this. On. So that's, that's in part why you wrote the book was to try and have some discussion about holding power accountable, a power that people well, didn't even see, to su don't even if see we, to some extent. If we redistributed power so that we could have an online middle class, we wouldn't have to be so accountable. I mean, for the moment, since power is so concentrated, of course we have a heightened requirement for accountability, but it's an unnatural one. I mean, nobody, nobody can be good enough to run Facebook. I mean, it's, it's not humanly impossible, and that role shouldn't exist. Um, and um, by the way, I haven't seen the Facebook movie. I, I, I would prefer not to see such a personalized attack. I, I, not that I've, like, I, I haven't seen the film, so I don't have my opinion of it, but my sense is that it's something that isn't helpful. But um, the, um, so 
All right, so, so getting back okay. to the paid thing. All right, so we have to extrapolate. Um, you remember I talked about this bargain. So in my opinion, the bargain between technologists in the world that will make better jobs to replace the obsolete jobs, that will make life, will make the means by which you can have power and clout in your life more intellectual and more, base, more based on your heart and mind instead of your hand and back. That, that progression is the thing that, that uh, killed the Soviet Union. That's the thing that held the world together. If it hadn't been for that, we would have entered into a very different scenario because that's, that's what makes the world better. That's the right. fundamental deal. And, and so anyway, so, 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 this, so this, there was this turnaround. The, the Maoists, oh, this is the most bizarre, this is the most, there were, two, there were the Maoists, and then there were the counter, the people who were extremely against the Maoists, who were the libertarians that showed up. And it turns out online, online they're indistinguishable. They had exactly the same ideas. They're, they're the same people online. In the real world, they're different, but online they, they become the same. And the idea is to have this, um, uh, to, uh, basically, it's all power to the server, and then the people. Uh, uh, so, so when you talked a moment ago about yeah. about this fundamental bargain between technologists and society that will will give you better technology mm -hmm. and replace it with re replace your livelihood <coughs> with something progressive, leading the, to right. Mm -hmm. That uh, you talk in the book about this in the context of musicians, right? Well, and, I, and and I'm and Ani DeFranco, right? And and that she was able to sell a lot of CDs as an independent artist and realize her artistic vision, yeah, right? and not be accountable to and not be and not well, be limited. And I, I'm okay, interested in that in uh -huh. the context of like journalism and investigative uh, investigative reporting. And you just talked about this <clears> in the New Yorker article about the um, Koch brothers, right? Coke, Coke, Coke brothers, yeah. And so uh, I think there's something very interesting there about that bargain being broken. Right. Well, right now the classes of people who've been disenfranchised are musicians, um, illustrators, so the creative class, journalists, you might say. Right. And so writers. Well, so, um, but see, remember, okay. So if the if the progressive um, uh, trajectory was to say that more and more people are becoming like creatives. That basically, if one generation is laying bricks, the next generation is designing bricks, and the next generation is programming the robots that do the bricks, and the next generation is, the, I don't know, you know, like, but there's like feeding this, the robots. Feeding, I don't know what it is, but the point is that there's there's an increasing way. In, so so the only we don't know how good robots will get, but the thing is, um, if robots get really good, the only stuff left for people to do is the creative stuff, and if that's the stuff you give away, then everybody becomes a peasant, you know. And so, uh -huh. so that, that, and that was the argument that Ted made so many years ago, a half a century ago. And that's the thing that we've, we've really lost touch with here because now we have this ideology that, oh, you should give it away and you should participate in all these crowd-based things and do all this stuff and you should enjoy your social networking page and your, your music feed and everything. But somehow you'll make money from something else. And so I want to talk about these other things for a second because this is really important. Um, there are two primary ideas for musicians, say, for how you make money. One is sell the t-shirt and the other is tour. And the sell the t-shirt thing will go away because of the robots. Because I mean, 10 years is about as long, maybe 15 years, there should be some cheap, disposable, self-reproducing little robot you can have at home that'll print your t-shirt for you, for God's sake. I mean, as soon as you have a robot at home that can print a t-shirt or make a piece of clothing for you, then the, the creative part of that um, becomes valueless, just like it does on a CD. And uh, then, the, then you can't sell t-shirts anymore. Right, um, and th and that that sh should be clear, and I, I think machines will at the very least get good enough for that. So mm -hmm. the T-shirt thing is a decade, then that goes away. 
The Turing thing has to do with what you think human life's about. So, so in my sense is that the first job of a civilization is to support a generation well enough to have another generation after it. And so uh, the, if you're 19 and you're touring in a van and going around to, to stinky blues clubs playing and using the internet to promote yourself, that can work. Um, I did something like that actually without the internet when I was younger. Um, once you have kids, once you have a spouse who needs care when they're ill, I mean, you have to be able to achieve dignity, and dignity means not having to sing for your supper for every meal. Or as I put it once, dignity is the opposite of real time. If you don't get to that point, you can't raise the next generation. And I'm really, not to put too fine a point on it, but I'm, I'm very struck by how many people who are the most fervent activists in the sort of free and open world where everything's supposed to be given away are still living with their parents. And it's just true, and, and the thing is that uh, there's, a, there's, this, there's this sense that, I mean, at some point you actually have to do something. And, uh, or another way to put it is in the US, in the 70s and 80s we decided to give up manufacturing because it was a dirty, dangerous thing uh, going on this progressive line and we wanted to sell intellectual property instead. But then we've now, to support advertising of all things, we've decided intellectual property isn't really all that big a thing. Uh, once you, once you give up music, then the other kinds start falling apart. So now, like, what are we doing? And that's a, it's a, it's a, it's a uh, okay. So yeah, you wrote this book to raise this range of mm -hmm. issues and to get some real like mm -hmm. discussion, intellectual engagement mm -hmm. in America around some of the inherent bargains we've mm -hmm. made with our technology, perhaps without even realizing it. And how do you feel like that has been received? Do you feel like you've had people? Have you ignited? Do you feel like the kind of conversations you want to see happening are happening? Yeah, the reception's been extremely interesting and different and vastly better than I expected. So what I expected was I'd be vilified in Silicon Valley or something. Not at all. I have to say all the key people, both the, the business leaders and the, uh, uh, the scientists and uh, uh, are have been very open and very supportive. For instance, I, I've criticized the Wikipedia a lot, and both of the founders have written me sort of ebullient letters supporting the book and have said nice things about it in public. And um, I, so actually, um, within within the sort of Silicon Valley elite world, uh, Silicon Valley speaking in a global sense, the, yeah. the Silicon Valley in our hearts, not not the place by San Francisco. Technorati. Yeah, um, it's been received. Uh, very, very well, and the discussions there have been very, very positive, and in a couple of cases have really changed the course of events a bit uh, in ways that I think were good, but not stories that I can really talk about. Now, there's a different thing, though, which I want to talk about, which um, I think I, the title I gave you is something about digital fads. So do you remember how earlier I talked about this sort of, um, this bank of uh, Marxists that used to have academic positions? And there might be a few around, maybe some of you are, are among them, I don't know, but um, it used to be almost like uh, it was so intense to be a student in in the 70s uh, in the U.S. because there were, you were getting such an intense dose of this so much so much of the time, and I'm a little concerned that our segue into um, uh, breaking the bargain of of having a middle class online has spawned a new class of academics that are going to be like that that are sort of becoming entrenched and are sort of holding on to these ideas we had at a certain point and turning them into this official ideology and. That's another reason I wrote the book. I just feel like there has to be just more refutation of that because it's become so thick and so doctrinaire, and there's so many kids who never hear an alternative. The, the, and, uh, the, what's become, I just want to say, what you're saying is that a certain kind of 
uh, egalitarianism has become so doctrinaire that no, that elitism has become out of vogue. Well, it's not. Or, it's not exactly egalitarianism. It's more. Um, it's a cluster of things that, that tend to be found together. It's a, it's it's a sort of uh, um, a fascination with extra human or meta human processes, uh, crowd wisdom systems, and that sort of thing. A sort of a belief that popularity equals achievement, that uh, novelty well, and pattern I, equals creativity. That sort of it's like a, it's an information centric view, but, and it's also a it's also a kind of a naive view that somehow you'll just make a living because of the market. It's like it's a weird Through combination. Sharing. Yeah, it's a sort of a it, like I say. There's this bizarre way in, it, in which it's both Maoist and libertarian at the same time, and um, uh, I always hesitate to characterize it because, of course, I don't like being summarized by other people, and naturally, those people don't like being summarized by me, and it's impossible to get it exactly right. But there is this sort of thing that uh, is happening in, in campuses, and I just uh, I like speaking at campuses just to try to, to fight it. With that, let's see if we have some questions. Yeah. Straight back. Tell us your name. And oh, my name? Mm-hmm. Um, I basically read an account of a lot of your views and perspectives in uh, Joel Garrow's book, Radical Evolution, which is, I guess, about transhumanism. How do your perspectives about technology and, I guess, the, the theory of technology inform your views about transhumanist movements and the future of humanity as a whole? Oh, okay. It's well, a small question. Yeah. No, that's good. Um, uh, Joel is a fine journalist. I, I, I haven't read that book, though, because I, I don't know. I, I know every, it's like there's a weird thing where everybody's like reading everything said about them online, and I, I don't get it. Like I, that, I just, like, why do that? I just never look at any of that stuff. So I haven't read it. I do know Joel, and I think he's, he's a really sharp journalist. So I suspect it's a, it's a well-written book and, and a, a fair representation of my views. Um, so, so my basic position on this is that it, in, the, in some unknowable time period in the future, we should hope for some sort of transhuman future because the, al the alternative would to always be stay the same or to go extinct or to revert to some what do you slugs. Mean transhuman? Well, transhuman is, is techno-speak for some sort of state of humanity that's greater and smarter and more achieved and attained than anything we have so far. Now, um, specifically, okay, this goes back to von Neumann in mid-20th century who had the idea of the singularity. Um, so, uh, and I write about this in, in Gadget if you want to read my, my writing on it directly. So the idea is that at some point, uh, robots start to be able to replicate themselves and, uh, and then they get better and better at it and, and then in a blink of an eye, they suddenly sort of take over everything because they've gotten so much smarter. Um, and then what happens next depends on who you talk to. There are a lot of different versions of it. Um, I used to have fun trading versions of it with Marvin Minsky when very sweet, sweet, sweet man who was a mentor to me um, whenever it was, 30-something years ago. Um, and uh, uh, Ray Kurzweil, a buddy of mine um, who I disagree with totally but really like, uh, but he thinks that uh, this, uh, the big, the, this big computer in the sky will suddenly emerge that will scoop up the contents of all our brains and will live in virtual reality of all places. Um, uh, I, I presume practicing archery and reading the classics and beautiful <laughs> virtual lawns. And uh, <laughs> um, so, so to me, um, so that's the sort of the transhuman idea is that gradually 
Uh, and there, there are many, many variations. Maybe we start augmenting our brains and we get super intelligent, or maybe we get virtualized by this computer in the sky, or we become immortal because of biotechnology. There, there are all these different strands of it, but we come more than we... So, so here's the thing about that. Having um, an idea that the future will be better than the past is absolutely central to uh, a healthy technological civilization. It's, it's, it's central to the idea of the Enlightenment. It's central to scientific discovery and, and, and philosophical curiosity. I, I, so to, to say, no, we'll always be the same would be immediately stupid and deadening. But also, I mean, like I said, the, the alternatives in the long term are stay the same forever, revert, die, or get, you know, do something amazing. So I certainly hope we do something amazing in the long term. The problem is if you believe it'll happen in your lifetime, you turn into a dangerous nutcase. And that's, a, that's the crucial, crucial distinction. If somebody believes that God is going to descend and do this or that someday, but we don't know when, that's really different from somebody who says, oh, it's going to be in our lifetime and it's happening. And so, um, so, so as with religious fundamentalists, so with technological fundamentalists, if you really believe you know it's happening imminently, then you become nutty. And um, there's a, this, this idea of an imminent singularity has enormous influence in, in the Silicon Valley of our hearts, in the global Silicon Valley. Um, there's a thing called Silicon Valley University next to Google where people go and spend a lot of money to hear about it and get, get, and get pseudo certificates and being singularized or something and there's <laughs> and I know I don't know you know it's funny because these guys like they I got calls from some of the people who are teaching there saying you know you're you're oversimplifying it we do some good teaching here we do some good computer science I say yeah but you're called the singularity university I mean come on like just like I mean I, I don't know I uh, and and so so it's a, it's a really big deal like um Larry, the other Google founder, is really into it, and a lot of people are. It, it really has a lot of people are really influenced by and it has implications for huge implications technological because development. all these things kind of feed together. And so, for instance, if you really believe that a big computer in the sky is emerging, that some sort of collective intelligence from the internet is turning into this super something or other, that's if you believe that, then you don't worry so much about musicians getting paid in the, in, at the present. You know, I, and, and it's just like it, it gives you this bigger picture. It gives or, you this. Uh, you think uh, you think harvesting more information from people's habits is is of great value, right? Well, that personalization. Listen, um, what I think is that if there are algorithms that can harvest things of value from your life, you should own the data that's harvested, and that's what I was just talking about. I was just trying to work out a, a model with a bit of specificity about how to do that. I think basically, just in a nutshell, if there are algorithms from a company like. Facebook or Google or anybody who's like spying on you and deriving something, that derivative information should be something you own and control and that you can sell and do what you want with. And I'm convinced that the companies that are good at harvesting it would make far more money than they do now because right now they're stuck with this advertising model, which is, I mean, the lunacy of this commercially is, is something that, that I also have to get across because I'm very much a capitalist and I'm very much a booster for Silicon Valley and absolutely unashamedly. I want, I want my friends to do well. I want to do well. I like Silicon Valley being rich. I, I, I'm not without apology. I, I think it's good for the world. But the thing is right now what's happening 
is Google's growth is slowing for the very simple reason that how much advertising can there be? I mean, can you have an economy entirely based on advertising? You know, I mean, at some point somebody has to do something that's advertised, right? It just has, there has to be something. I mean, like, we could, we'll end, up, we could end up with a world where, like, one person jumps on a pogo stick and then the entire billions of people are, like, advertising each other about that. I don't know. I, you know, like, how far can you push it? And so, so Google is facing this problem that they've, they've sort of done this one thing but kind of pushed it about as far as you can. Now, Facebook's come along and has a little bit of another business plan on the side with gaming, but for the most part has to kind of steal Google's business to grow. That's stupid. There should be enough to go around. You know? So from a business point of view, I think this advertising-centric plan is lunacy, is lunacy for Silicon Valley. It's like we're limiting our growth artificially with it. Um, and potentially damaging lots of important human activity. Well, see, if people, if we, if we did, if we adhere to the original um, plan of an online middle class where people could make their livings into the far future by selling their hopes and dreams to each other and reinventing themselves with a sense of liberty, you know, that's what, that's what you want from a middle class. If we had that, then the services and support for them would surely create a bigger business opportunity than this advertising, which is sort of a spiral to the bottom. It feels like, you know what it feels like to me? Silicon Valley feels like when you walk into, in a lot of America, not Cambridge or Manhattan, but if you're just out in regular America, there'll be block after block with a check cashing store and the quick loan place and the pawn shop, and it's just like pulling the last oh little God. money out of things as, as things are spiraling down. And that's how it feels to me. It's like we're advertising between each other as we're defunding the idea of intellectual and artistic activity. And there's this, there's this kind of sinking feeling to it. And it's urgent for Silicon Valley to snap out of it. And, and that, to snap out of it requires them to, to, to think about the, va the values they're bringing to the technology they're building, to think about human activity. Well, no, it's just like, where's the money? How do, you, how do you get successful in business? It's by having customers. You need to have rich customers to have a rich business. And you can't, so the thing is, if we're going to have a society without a middle class where there's just a few rich, they're rich people and they're all close to the servers and, it, and there's an aristocracy and it's inherited, you can have that. That's happened in the world a lot. But what makes people richer is to have distributed wealth so that you can actually sell to all these people. And I mean, like, capitalism has actually worked and we're, we're abandoning it. Excellent. All right. Another question here. Yeah. Hi, Matt. Uh, you talk a lot about which is like very uh, different from what I've heard anywhere else before that a lot of these like free services are not actually helping anyone. Well, not helping society as a whole. So, I guess when it comes to like. If the internet's going to exist, which it sounds like I didn't quite say that. I mean, there are services. I'm not saying that there's no there's no trade. I just think it's not sustain. The current arrangement isn't sustainable. Okay. Yeah. So for services like uh, Google, which I think I'd assume you're on board with it, something like that has to exist. There has to be a way to search. Search is great. Yeah. yeah. What sort of what sort of model do you see working for that sort of service? Like, well, should Google be charging everyone five bucks a month to to index the internet? No, what I think should happen is when Google, I think I should be able to sell my music online and when Google helps somebody find my music, they should get a cut. You know, simple. And if that, you multiply that by billions of people who are actually doing something, and Google will make more money than with the stupid advertising. Because right now, the number of actual ad keywords, like their customer base is really limited. If you look at it, it's, it's really interesting. Like they have something that's really impressive and, and sticky, as we say, but um, it can't grow that much more, you know? And, uh, so there's a much bigger horizon for them to support a middle class instead of an elite. And it's, it's also sort of, there's another dignity issue, which is that if you look like the top, the top um, 
the top keywords for Google are from uh, law firms trying to round up people for class action lawsuits. Um, and during the mortgage thing, a lot of the top keywords were for stupid mortgages. And there's a way, when, when you run the world this way, where you, just, where you have this pool of people who are advertising to reach all these other people who are getting poorer, there's a lack of dignity because the kinds of customers you attract are not really great ones. And of course, there's also wonderful stuff on Google and also on Facebook. You know, I, I don't want to overcharacterize, but I'm just saying this future of supporting a middle class would be so much richer and also more dignified. Um, and it's not that different. It's just because uh, uh, I, don't, I don't expect to personally run a search service as good for my one server as Google can run. I think there's a great future for them. I just think they need to expand uh, from this advertising-centric thing. Um, yeah, I think it could be a little like that. I think in the case of Google, um, it might be, well, like their original, their original mission to organize the information of the world is still a great mission statement. And I think there's a, the problem is that their business plan has become so centered on this one little, this, adver this referral thing. It's really not advertising exactly. It's, um, well, I don't want to, I can say a lot more about why I think it's, it's got a poor future, but um, the, the better thing is to be paid for indexing the world. So for instance, if I say, like, another option is why not pay for the search? Like, what if you paid a penny per search? Like, I would do that to not be spied on. It's not even an option, <laughs> you know? Right here. Hey, t tell us who you are. The business model of Google, part of its limitations to growth are where it selects uh, its, its business to happen. So for example, it's now deliberating over the extent to which it's going to be operating in China. Mm -hmm. And if it participates, you can imagine a lot of growth of Google in the future. But it means potentially that they need to be thinking about their value systems and, and what they're going to do with the user base there. So yeah. Yeah, maybe you can rant for a little bit about <laughs> I never rant. Are you kidding? No. <laughs> I don't know what the subject is. I guarantee I can rant about it. Maybe you can speak on the subject of when you have companies like this uh -huh. intersecting with different political systems. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm going, so there's actually, so my book is being translated to both Chinese, both prominent Chinese uh, print markets right now, the, the Taiwanese and the Simplified and Mainland. And, uh, so I got a call from the mainland thing. Said you use this term digital Maoism, and we're trying to figure out what to do with it. And I said, okay, well let's talk about it. And I described it to them, and they said, oh, this makes perfect sense. We'll just translate it literally. Everybody will understand this. And <laughs> I don't know what's going to happen. I'm really curious. Uh, but apparently, I'm not going to be censored in my Chinese edition. I don't know. We'll see. I'm, I'm really curious. Um, I mean, China is is. Um, Wow, China is such an interesting case. I mean, essentially, the Communist Party was a pre-internet implementation of the business, or a Communist Party was a pre-internet implementation of this spy and charge model. You know, uh, it's it, and and um, no, it's true. I mean, <laughs> that's fantastic. I'm just wondering how many times Google's used to being compared to Mao. Oh yeah, I guess there's an irony there, but. Um, I mean, I like Google more than I like the Chinese Communist Party. I just, uh, a lot more. There's more utility there. Um, well, you know, the Chinese Communist Party has done a lot. I, I just don't. I don't like some of the stuff they've done. I really abhor. I mean, on the other hand, when I was growing up, we feared a great war with them, and that hasn't come to pass. Instead, they're just making us poor with Walmart, and um, it's better. 
right? But, uh, or, or in other words, we've had you know, global scale reverse mercantilism with them, and it's better than more. It's actually kind of you know, the best possible outcome. It's kind of amazing. It worked out so well. So I kind of have hope for China. I mean, my, what I fear with China is if robots really do get good soon, and they might, then all of a sudden this cheap labor business plan goes away because you just have cheaper robots wherever you are. And that could, if that happens, it could happen very quickly. You could have a criticality. And, um, fabrication. Well, in some ways, the reason China yeah. and Walmart exist is cheap fabrication. Right, exactly. Right. So if you have even cheaper local fabrication, then there's no longer reason to ship That's right. raw materials to China and bring back a good. And, and, and the thing is that China has all these other problems. It has, just like we do, it has a lot of problems that are coming up in the next couple of decades with demographic issues and regional issues and all sorts of stuff. And um, if, if the robots get good at about the same time, that could be a lot of challenges at once for them. So I'm a little worried about them suddenly being destabilized. Uh, but anyway, your question is sort of about this political stuff. and. Um, I, I mean, let me lay out a scenario for you. Let's just suppose that, that this ideology turned around and we started supporting an online middle class instead of what we're doing, and it worked out really well, and all the companies got richer, and people got richer, and everything was like happening. Uh, what a great example to set. And then I think a lot of other people around the world would look at it and say, oh yeah, that's the way to do it. So uh, I think that's the best response to China. Uh, I mean, the problem is that um, the Chinese response to Google is not, oh, what you're doing is wrong. It's that, oh, we want the, we want the server. We want, we, we, that, that, that we should own that server. Why should, why should you be the Communist Party of China? You know, that's, that's more or less what happened. And um, I, I, I don't, so what I'd like to do is just show them a better example. Can you just uh, be a little more clear and explicit about your alternative vision? I, I guess I don't understand how, sure, sure. how this new architecture can happen organically or naturally. Is there some existing examples of, of online businesses that do work in the way that you okay. prefer? I'm, I'm very happy to do that. Um, I have to say it's not, um, at least I haven't gotten to the point where I can compress it into a very simple presentation. I'm working on that because I'd like to do a book on that. But let me give you an outline of it because I have thought a great deal about it. So to get to something like I'm talking about from where we are now, here are the steps that I would see. Um, the first one is only a single login and financial account for each person in the online world, or rather um, universal acceptance of any legitimate online account by any other business. So let me explain why this is important. In order to support a middle class, you need a single currency. If you have, if you have a fragmented currency, then you create fiefdoms that support an aristocracy. So fundamentally, there can only be one kind of dollar bill, and there can only be you know, one, one US. There are certain things that have to be unitary in order to create a petite bourgeoisie. Right now, that we have a situation where um, we have uh, this sort of bizarre um, clash of extremes that feed each other. So one of the extremes is the Pirate Bay and file sharing and, and all that. And the other one is the, the walled garden, Apple, and so forth. And um, Apple needs to become really extreme and tight ass in order to make any money, because if it leaks into the Pirate Bay world, then they're sunk. The Pirate Bay needs somebody to make content worth pirating, and the open, you know, the open source shared community uh, empirically just has not done much of that. I know the ideology is that it has, but I think, in fact, that's a false perception. But that's, that's a whole debate. And so, so they need each other, and they're cycling back and forth. So the better alternative is, is uh, Ted's alternative, where each person is can be their own store if they want to, and everybody's on an equal playing field, and there's clout distributed in a petite bourgeoisie. So to do that, 
Um, I know this is going to come as a shock, <laughs> but your, your, your Amazon login should work at the iTunes store. And if you start selling stuff yourself, anybody's login of either should work for you. Now, there's several reasons that's crucial. One is it allows you to start to have universal, uh, universal commerce without these boundaries. Um, without Apple deciding what should be sold. Yeah, but, but so, so there's, there's a, there are a couple of ideas that have to click into place at once here. And uh, believe me, I know this is complicated. And I'm sure there are holes in the version I'm telling you. I don't doubt that at all. And, and I'm, so I, I'm not claiming to have a perfect uh, means here. And I'm sure it would be messy in, in, in execution. But um, first of all, the, the current the current approach to um, file sharing is prohibition, which I think is inane. Because I mean, like I was a kid too, and I still am. I mean, I don't like being told what I'm prohibited from doing. It's stupid. And and uh, uh, I mean, you know, if you tell them don't file, you know, if you say don't don't no music don't for you. Yeah, I mean, it's like it's it's it's, it's there's really a preposterous quality to it. And um, and. Uh, the, the, the reason that people do things is ultimately out of a social contract that they buy into, and that ultimately comes out of some version of the golden rule. So uh, there, there are many reasons that you're probably not going to leave here and break into somebody's apartment and steal their TV tonight. And among those reasons are you might get caught, and it's not in your habit. And all, there are, there's a whole range of things. But ultimately, at the core of it, is that you want to live in a world where apartments aren't getting broken into all the time, because you enjoy knowing that your place is unlikely to be broken into. So you behave according to the world you want to live in. It's the golden rule. So as soon as you're making income from your own stuff online, paying other people for stuff will start to make sense, because you'll be supporting a system that supports you. Um, and, and until you have that, that feeling of buy-in, the, the whole thing doesn't click. So, what has to happen is there has to be some event where people start to really perceive they can make some money. Now, the single login is necessary because it's cognitively impossible to, to manage a billion logins and a billion accounts and enter. I think right now, um, there is some data on this, but people really only keep up a handful of long-term online accounts where they really update the credit card info when it expires and all that. And it's that cognitive limitation that really limits the marketplace. Because uh, like, if somebody wanted to start a new iTunes store or something, like, I mean, how many of these things are you going to keep current? It's just impossible. And then, of course, once you buy something there and it doesn't work in the other place, there's the interoperability thing. So, so there has to be universality. The second thing is um, no file copying. Now, this is, this is weird. And it's a computer science issue, which I can describe. Um, it would take a little bit of time. But the, a lot of earlier computers didn't have files. The Macintosh was originally built without files. It only got files at the last minute. And um, files were an idea that came out of a particular set of ideas about how to use computers. They're not terrible, but they've become sort of universal. Um, and, and the problem with the file is it suggests that it should be copied. Now, in order to, if you want to get an idea of how, uh, if you want to get an idea of how an architecture would work where files aren't copied, just cons consider the iTunes Store or a net. Netflix uh, streaming or something. There's only one logical copy of each movie or each tune. And then um, the, uh, well, net Netflix streaming is a better example, actually. So with Netflix, you watch the movie. It streams to you. There's only one logical copy. Netflix probably caches copies as an engineering expediency in different places. But from a logical point of view, there's only one of them. And um, so that, that allows it to have value. Um, you can say it's an artificial imposition of scarcity, but I would say it's an appropriate one. Let me, this becomes a long argument, but let me give you just one argument um, for 
why it would be appropriate to enforce scarcity by not having file copying. Um, I've already mentioned all the things about human dignity and the future of the human class and how the, you know, and all that. Um, consider the carbon footprint of the internet. Just BitTorrent, which is essentially only used for, for piracy of movies, is more than half of the bandwidth on the internet, you know? And so, you know, we don't think of the internet as having a carbon footprint, but it's this enormous number of machines distributed around the world. It's this giant industrial capacity that's double its size just so some, some idiots can copy movies. And that's extraordinary. I mean, how, what it, it, it's got to be the least ethical, you know, <laughs> car, uh, carbon spewing going on because there's absolutely no function for it. And so, you know, at a certain point, the, um, the, the, the artificial increase of information by copying, uh, bits are not free. Bits are physical. They always are physical. Um, it's just not sustainable because there's no end to the number of bits you could want. So what you really should have is an overall efficient information system uh, because it actually is an expensive technology. We think of it, there's this idea that it's getting cheaper and cheaper by Moore's Law, so we might as well think of it as being free. But no, 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 no. Every time you set a bit, you create waste heat and you spew carbon. It's just truth. It's, it's physics, you know? And so, um, uh, so, since the, so the reality underlying the bits argues also for Ted's idea. And, and anyway, so, um, so one login, uh, only one copy of each file. Um, now, how do we get there from here? I, I see this day this letter comes in, in your inbox, and it says, um, I'm, this is a letter from an entity that you've probably learned to hate, but it's really you, you own it. We're called the government. And as you might remember, there was a selection where you voted for this party that had this platform. Thanks for voting for us. Now we're going to implement the thing we said we would. And here's how this works. Um, at your option, you now, as a citizen of the US, have a right to opt to get free connectivity forever. No more bills to Comcast. No more bills to, no, you don't pay AT&T anymore. Your bit transfers become free. However, uh, in, in exchange, you agree to adhere to a new regime where you don't copy files, and you pay for stuff, and you get a chance to be paid for it. We think you'll do better under the system. We hope you try it. It's your option whether to switch or not. If you switch, you, you really have to do it. And then I think gradually, you know, there would, it would start to spread. Now, I'm sure if you're thinking this in your head, I'm sure you're poking it full of holes, and the, the, those holes are real. But I think the general sketch is actually viable, I'm sure, you know, in, in a, in, with more sophistication than this little, than this little summary. But that's, that's it. Ugh. OK. Yeah. Well, you know, a lot of the stuff they're doing now for free. Like, um, I, I think when somebody makes a, a video that a lot of people watch online, they should make money. Not just a few, like, right now we have this sort of Horatio Alger or sort of, um, you could call it a, uh, um, oh god, my brain, I'm a little tired, I've been traveling so much. You could call it a, um, uh, a gambler's a gambler sort of motivation where there's a small chance you'll make a lot of you'll make some money but like if you look at the iTunes store there's so few people that get anything from it and on Android it's like nothing and on uh, YouTube there's like a few people who get a pit and so there's like a little bit of motivation there but it's not based on real expectation what there should be is when you like if 10,000 people want to watch your stuff you should make a hundred bucks or something like you know I don't know what the balance would be but there should be there should be a way that it's trading back and forth and then what I think would happen 
and this is, I think, borne out by the data from the 90s I mentioned, is that not everybody would be getting income from this, obviously, but a critical, I think there's like a critical boundary, I don't know what that number is, where if a certain percentage of society can get money this way, then the others who don't can support them, and there's, there's an economy there. And I think 10% is too small, 90% is too much to hope for. I don't know what the real number would be, and I don't know what the critical number is for the whole scheme to work, but I believe we can go on indefinitely selling each other's our hopes and dreams. I mean, I think uh, if the machines get good enough that we have the basic means of survival without having to risk our bodies all the time in some kind of work, then I think it should be possible for us to trade the fruits of our hearts and minds indefinitely in a way that we actually are self-directive and there isn't some central server spying on us. I think that should be possible. Yeah. Brookline, actually, my colleague and I are here because um, we do a series at the theater called Science on Screen. We've had both Marvin Minsky and Kurt Ray Kurzweil. Mm -hmm. And I talked to you in the early 90s when I was doing a film for PBS about the science of vision, and you explained the glove to me. Um, in several phone conversations, and we would love to invite you to come to the Coolidge and show your favorite film and talk to our audience. Would you do that? Oh, <laughs> well, you can't do an invitation in front of an audience. That's not fair. You can't do that. Oh, come on. I, I, I can't, I can't, get, uh, no, 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 no. Wait, 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 wait. No, I, I get, I, in principle, sure, but we, we have to look at it. I, I don't know. I mean, oh, come on. Uh. So, you know, I'm, uh, <laughs> theater people. God. Theater people are the ones you want to be putting on online. No, no, I want, I want you to make money. I just don't want you to shame me into agreeing to something in front of an audience. <laughs> okay. So, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a political person. Like, I'm interested uh -huh. in power. Right? Yeah. And, uh, it shows, man. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, it strikes me, I mean, uh, and I'm also a developer and a programmer, right? Uh -huh. And so one of the things that I have enjoyed most about your book and listening to you talk is the way you use a lot of political philosophy and economics to talk about computer science and programming, right, and building things. Yeah. And so I guess I, I, I kind of wonder what, uh, what the implications are. We talked a lot about Google and kind of the creative class and economics, mm -hmm. but, and you, but you just mentioned government. I'm kind of wondering... What uh, what role you see for 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 government in this? Uh... Government should, I mean, um, government actually has a central role on the internet, but it pretends not to because of our ridiculous rhetoric in this country. Um, but uh, no, government should be. If you have a distributed power and clout to middle class, government becomes a good thing. It becomes a responsive thing, and you can start to have a responsible, empowered electorate that isn't easily cowered and corrupted, I think. And, I, and that's what I'd like to see online, and I'd like to see it offline, too. You know? And uh, we're drifting away from it now, obviously. You, you know, um, I, I kind of want to get back to some of this stuff about the potential for journalism. Right, mm -hmm. like uh, I, you, I can't remember exactly where it was. I read this. You were talking about kind of, uh, maybe it was in the target right about education ambidextrous, right? 
that yeah, there's um, something like that. I that that uh, on the one hand, you don't want computers telling you what kind of music to buy based on your prior purchases, but on the other hand, that was better than a few bad DJs on the radio telling you what kind of music to listen to, right? Yeah, yeah. I guess. See, the, here's the problem I run into, which is um, a lot of people misperceive me as having turned on the internet or something like. I can't tell you. 90% of the time, if I'm on like some radio or TV, TV thing, the first question is, why have you come to hate the internet? And then I have to go, no, I love the internet. I really do. I love it. I love it. I love it. And it's like, it's, it gets so old. But there's, um, uh, I, I always feel that I have to try to avoid being pigeonholed as the person who's turned against it or something, because that's absolutely not true. And so I, I don't remember what I wrote here, because honestly, well, I Well, I'll uh, tell you, I, so, so like, uh -huh. I was always interested in, or I was interested in the internet because it yeah. was a way to break the political establishment, right? To break through it and introduce okay. new ideas and new leadership, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but by the same token, in kind of getting engaged in that, I realized, oh, well, now there's this, like, new class of, of power players who are making decisions about the public sphere and about information mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. about our civic life that are not political, they're not elected, they're big, they're companies, they're technologists, and they bring to it their own set of values. Well, you know, the thing is, the, um, yeah, it's, it's very true. I mean, some of the Silicon Valley figures are surely more influential than the political figures we talk about. Um, but if, the other thing I have to say, I mean, the, the particular internet designs that have become popular that are driven by this advertising model where everybody is supposed to be sort of just randomly, uh, well, not randomly, people are um, aggregated and they're, they're participating in these structures that are bigger than them for the service of some, some supposed bigger cause. Um, they tend to support a kind of a mobby mentality. And they, uh, if you look at, I mean, New, new media has just been great for cranky extremists all over the world and in the United States, and it's it's a shame. It's really it's really um, it's a tremendous lost opportunity. The internet could be fantastic, but these particular designs, which are very recent and just a little thin coating of film on top of the internet that I love, are are kind of ruining it. Ruining it. Yeah, I mean like. <laughs> If you look, you go in a chat, go, the tea parties, all Twittery and social, socially networked. And, you know, and, and, and it's it just like, it's like the self-reinforcing thing. I mean, when, um, there are a lot of problems here. Okay, one thing is that. Uh, so, so, I mean, Obama, Obama wouldn't be president if it wasn't for the internet. Huh? Right. It's like a, no, I, you know, I think the thing is that Obama, It's true. It's true. And the funny thing is that the, the prototype for the Tea Party movement was probably Code Pink from Berkeley, from my hometown. Um, there's, a, there's a way that the, the left in this, in this country innovates in media. Uh, and then when it goes to scale, it's the right that, that really benefits from it and finds the use of whatever the innovation was. Um, it's been a repeated pattern. Um, it's a drag. Uh, what I do, th so, so look, here, a um, couple problems. One is that um, people in certain social settings, online or offline, uh, tend to have what I call their inner troll brought out. And if you're in a, um, oh, by the way, thanks for, thanks for coming, and I'll, I, I appreciate it, and I will read your stuff. Um, so the, uh, the, um, 
Uh, this is something I go into in the book quite a bit, that I think there's a standard pattern of troll invocation that you can see in Tea Party sites and even in just sites about something innocent like balloons or something, and you see it in jihadi sites too, where um, a group of people who are thrust into the situation where the status roles are initially unclear um, form two enemies. They, they form an inner enemy and an outer enemy. The inner enemy is the low person on the totem pole within their own world, and nobody wants to be there, so people are afraid. And whenever somebody gets dumped on, it gets pounded by everybody to, to avoid the evil eye. And then the far enemy is wherever the other is. And you see this pattern come up again and again in these online things, and it makes people um, form into a mob mentality. And uh, just given and, and human history, I think it's playing with fire. I, I don't want to. And um, you, you see an argument in the book that anonymity is like an is like is like central to the problem of the mob mentality. Yeah, I I um, you know, God, the original passage in the book had been a bit too long and it got simplified. I I want to try to present a more nuanced. See, I think radical anonymity and radical single identity online are both mistakes. Uh, so so the opposite of anonymity might be Facebook, where they where it's difficult to have multiple identities and it's breaking the rules. And that also is problematic. I mean, basically people. Uh, I have a friend named Josh who wants to create bad Josh. He'll have good Josh, Josh and bad Josh on so, Facebook. Um, I mean, the fundamental issue is that people should be responsible for themselves and should have autonomy. And um, part of that, this might sound like a contradiction, but it isn't. You can't treat people as like bits. They're, people are part of nature, part of this unfathomable mystery that we can't represent with computers. And we can't quite reduce ourselves in that way. So. A, for a person to be themselves, they have to lie a little bit, at least at some point. And, and that might sound like a contradiction, but let me give you an example. Um, Bob Dylan, if he'd been, if he kept the Facebook page when he was Zimmerman in Minnesota, would have had a much harder time in the village creating this mystique. And the fact that, so there was a bit of subterfuge there, but that's part of personhood. Everybody goes through some version of that in order to leave home. Um, I think. A lot of marriages kind of wouldn't happen if everything was totally open and transparent. I, I think there's a bit of, there's a bit of a thing that is just part of life, and and the point is, so so rather than having the one or zero bit amplified into the way we live our lives, where we have to be totally anonymous or, to, or or totally um, living according to the official Facebook representation of us, people have to be have to own their data and have to be responsible for it benefit and suffer from it, and they have to find their own middle path and take their own risks and set their own price. And that's the only way to have personhood. And now, I, 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 you're looking a little quizzical, and I realize it's, it's actually a bit of a difficult concept, even though it's simple in a sense. But um, the, the key here is personal autonomy. And if you have, um, when you set up an open forum where uh, people can be anonymous, there's a sort of an arms race of personal risk of hurt and everybody becomes anonymous so it becomes enforced. If in, on Facebook where everybody has to be themselves in theory, um, although my cat's on it, but uh, Zuck doesn't know that. But uh, so, uh, so in, in that, and by the way, the me that's on it is a fake that's run by somebody. I'm not on Facebook. There's a fake me on it. So don't send personal notes to it. Um, but uh, I don't know who, who does that. I don't know who my fake me is. Uh, but there's not, well, it pisses me off because uh, there was this thing, the Time Magazine list of the 100 most influential people, which I'm, I'm sure is scientifically derived, and I was on it this year. And uh, they had a social networking index of sort of how many friends and fans and followers and all this nonsense you have. And so, you know, like Lady Gaga had however many million. And I had zero, and I was so proud of that. I love that zero. And now I wouldn't anymore because there's this fake me that's getting friends on Facebook, and it really pisses me off. Why were you proud of that? Oh, you know, um, 
because it means I'm not subordinated by it. It means that there's no number on me in their, you know, in their database. It means, it means I'm not defined by it. I'm not ranked. I think the one thing you can do to decrease civility the most in human affairs is impose a single uh, status hierarchy on people. And the thing you Which can Facebook do, does pretty effectively. Yeah, and the way to increase civility and productivity and happiness in people is to have multiple overlapping ambiguous status hierarchies so that more people can define their own terms for winning. Um, and, and, and so, uh, yeah, so I definitely wanted a zero there. Being, you know, like you either want to be the most popular person on Facebook or zero, but being anywhere in between, you're, you're a subordinate, you know. Uh, you're in the race. Yeah. Do we have some more questions? Sir. Have you looked at Eleanor Ostrom's work in relationship to the internet? Tell us who you are first. My name is George Mokra. I live in Central Square, and I followed the issues for about 20 years. And so I have to confess, I often get questions like this where somebody will say, what about so-and-so's work? And I just have to confess I'm a little flaky and sometimes just have trouble recalling names and putting it together. So it's probably somebody I am familiar with, but I'm not making the connection right now. So if you say a little more. Along with a colleague, the uh, Nobel Prize for Economics this past year, and her work has been on how you govern comments she's been able to uh, show a variety of different ways in which the tragedy of the commons does not happen. And the first one of those is face-to-face -face communications within real-time commons. So she talks about how to govern the commons from fisheries to forestry to yeah, rights, okay. and also does work on policing and the internet. So, so I, um, I have not read her stuff directly. I've, I've been in discussions. I, I now am calibrated. And there was this, I had, um, I've had a thing going on in last year where I meet with economists. So it's, it's come up. But I'm sure I should know more about her work. Tracy. Hi, I'm Tracy Stark, I'm a student. Um, what's the possibility of some of us just setting up that utopia and inviting other people to join? Well. It has to, there has to be a sort of um, a bigger government kind of action on this because you'd just be wiped out instantly. It's sort of like saying start your own social network with different rules on Facebook. And a zillion people who've gotten pissed off at Facebook have wanted to start their own one. Uh, and of course it doesn't get any traction because of the network effect that everybody's already on Facebook. It's sort of like start your own new eBay because you don't like eBay's policies, but you'd have to coordinate all the buyers and sellers to move it once. So like once the connections, once there's, that's a very sticky thing. Once everything's connected in a network on a proprietary server, the coordination problem of moving a critical mass of people to a new one is profoundly difficult. And uh, that's why, like in, in Silicon Valley, because of, because of that, there's, whenever something new seems to be taking on, there's this incredible like, sort of tackling where everybody tries to grab it. Because if you can get that seed, then, um, that, then you can sort of ride with it as it gets scale. So, so uh, it's very, very, you know, once in a while, there's a thing you can do like that. But it's, it's, it's rare when that's possible. It's almost never possible. But sometimes. This one, I think, really needs a different kind of uh, approach. Max. You're at college. Um, I mean, I think it's interesting that you say there's too little capitalism on the internet because a lot of theorists have talked about how we've commodified everything in our culture and that the problem isn't too little capitalism but too much, that everything we have and every way that we interact with our culture is intermediated by buying and selling. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, 
I think like there's so I, I guess if you could talk about some of the virtues of like non-capitalist economies where people are willing to do things because they matter and they help people and just simply adding money to that dynamic makes them less willing to do that for example like they've run studies where parents are less willing to pick up their kids on time if you pay them to do that right because they feel that picking up their kids is a duty and once they're paid to do that they f feel that they're just a product themselves sure so what i'd like you to do as a thought experiment is to change the word money to the word clout Okay, so, so because it becomes a question of power. So the, the, the classic way that, um, I mean, of course, I, I'm a father, and I wouldn't want to be paid to pick up my daughter either. And I, the, but the, the classic way that um, sort of lefty idealism fails is that uh, first you say, well, things, there shouldn't be so much money. There shouldn't be so much commerce. Let's, uh, uh, let's let the good nature of people do things, and I love that experience. I mean, I, I talked about what happened online in the 90s, which was a fantastic, gigantic flowering of that, which was amazing. But then the problem that comes up is all these people who are just doing stuff because they want to, and, and there's mutuality, and it's all great. Um, if it doesn't extend to the whole of life, meaning you know, paying for your hospital when you're sick, or getting a roof over your head in the winter, and all that stuff, then what, what ultimately happens is somebody else develops a power center that, that does have more clout and takes advantage of it. So it really has to do with distributed power and clout. I actually could care less about money. I, I really, and I, I also really, I'm somebody who's voluntarily a lot less wealthy than I could be, and, and that's a whole story, but I, I'm not like a big, um, I'm not a barren type of person, and I don't really advocate. I, I, I want more of a middle class distribution of wealth rather than support. I don't the the sort of Forbes kind of ideal of capitalism, but but um, the thing is, um, power struggles are very real and very tough, tougher than we can ever imagine. People fight to the death over a little bit of status all the time, and if people say just between you and me because we're nice we'll voluntarily do this and that somebody else can come along we, we have to unfortunately you have to do things in such a way that you also have clout relative to that third person in order for the system to be sustainable you have to uh you have to distribute clout defensively and and that's a tragic sad thing that i hate to say i hate the words coming out of my mouth but it's a truth and so um I, I mean, look at me. I live in Berkeley. I'm sort of a lefty guy by inclination. But the, but the problem is, you, you do have to you, you do have to live defensively, or you'll be trampled. And, and that's more or less what's happened on the internet. For a lot of people, the internet is this. It's it's an opportunity to spend your free time doing civic things. And I could be a powerful banker who has clout, who's rich. The internet for me is an opportunity to spend some time sharing ideas with people, like Wikipedians, you know, mm -hmm. that I, I doubt that that's their full job, but it's this space, this like non-commodified space where they can help people in their free time rather than watching sitcoms. Well, let's go back and to if we the... add money to it, I, I just fear that that okay. sense that this is a space, a civic space that I can spend the surplus of time 
helping people will be lost. Let's go back to the first person in your thought experiment. He's a person doing silly stuff. How are they paying their rent? A banker who spent. Oh, was that you had two people? No, if there's a banker, they're close to the server. They're fine. I want to talk about somebody who's not a banker. No, I mean, see, the thing is, there's. Um, oh, okay. Can I, can I, I want to say something? Can I say something a little tough to you? Okay. Um, Please, believe me. <laughs> um, the, the, the problem is that um, in Silicon Valley circles and in elite academic circles, um, we tend not to get this feeling of how much of the world is sinking. And out there, the world is sinking. I mean, it's just astounding. And um, the, I, there's an urgency. There's a, real, like, there's a real urgency to this question of the middle class, whether it's going to come from the online world or from the physical world. Right now, the online world is the only scenario that even seems imaginable. Um, and uh, there's this sort of a, there's this, the bubble of privilege that is very hard to avoid in which you sort of figure, well, there'll be some way to make a living. I mean, there always is. It'll be creative. It'll, there creative people. But there's a zillion creative engaged people out there who are sinking. And there's like this, um, so, so the thing is, um, I, if the banker wants to spend some time helping people, that's great. But there can only be very, very few bankers. If there was some way for their, for, 75% of the population of the earth to be a banker in that sense, then the problem solved. Um, but that's not, that's not the way it works. So um, I, uh, I think it's great. I, I, I do a lot of volunteerism stuff myself, and uh, I, I love doing it. I don't think I'm being paid for this thing. I don't remember. But um, the thing is, <laughs> the no. thing is, uh, You're not. yeah, I'm not. OK, so there you go. There you go. So uh, but the thing is, but the, the thing is, um, I, I don't have a problem with making a living at all. And, and um, I'm really, to, so, so these examples are a, a little phony. I mean, like what you really have to do is you have to go out into the world and really look at people's lives look at, and say, let's project out 100 years. How are all these people, um, is, is participating in online activities going to put a roof over their head? What, or, or, or is the only way that we can sustain these online things to have some sort of socialist system that distributes things to them. And if that's the agenda, that's a whole other thing. That's an interesting one. But the problem is that that's corruptible for exactly the same reason, because of the lack of distribution of, of clout. That's why Marxist stuff always turns so ugly. So I really think, uh, so, so uh, you know, and, and the problem is that I feel like in, in talking to you this way, once again, this is like such a sucky role, because I want to be the flowery person who's all inspirational and bright and heavy. But, th but there's some hard truths that have to be recognized here about how things go in human affairs and how things go in power struggles. And I, I, I ask you to try to, I, I, I challenge you to be a better realist. Um, I, I, I love the idea of people spending time, you know, helping others and, and volunteerism. But, but you can't build a civilization out of that because it'll be taken advantage of like that. It'll be trampled like crispy leaves. It'll be gone. Wow. Hey, do you want to hear some music? Um, I, I've been traveling, um, just for other reasons, I'm traveling with some exotic instruments. I just thought I'd bring them and play some music at the end. Is that OK? Because that cool. that'll compensate for this dreary little ending of the rhetoric there. Um, so I do appreciate um, you telling Max to be a realist. Oh yeah. <laughs> I don't even know what the story is. I, I guess I kind of do. Okay, this guy. Um, 
this is really fun. This is the original prototype for the computer if you want to be a bad historian. Um, so, uh, but it's approximately right. This is an 8,000-year-old design. That's disputable too, but it's, it's anyway at least 5,000. And I believe it's the first object that had multiple similar things that could be turned on or off. I think it's the first digital memory. And it's from Southeast Asia. This one's from Laos. Um, and I'll tell, you a, I'll tell you a story about it after I play a little bit. Thanks. So the story, this is called a can. It's from Laos. And the story is that, um, well, you know, there's not a standardized uh, anglification for this. It's a K-H-A-E-N is pretty common. K-H-E-N sometimes shows up. So um, this thing was traded across the Silk Route uh, in ancient times. And the, the Greeks knew about it. And then the Romans got a hold of one. And since they were Rome, they made a giant, giant version that was steam-driven, that was too big for people to play. So they had to have these big boards open and close the holes. And that was the origin of the keyboard. That turned into the organ and then the piano. And they were so big that they couldn't, that getting their slaves to operate them got hard. So they started to have this system of levers on levers. So they, could, they started to automate it. And that turned into player pipe organs. So there was actually this automated music thing. In the, it was used in a most delightful way to provide uh, music to the gore in the Colosseum. So, <laughs> Uh, those Romans, you know, like that's, so that's what they slaughtered people. Too. Yeah, yeah, they were a theatrical sort, you know, the Italians and theater people, you know. So, uh, so, uh, uh, so, <laughs> if you're going to put me on the spot, you're going to get put on the spot. See, that's that's uh, free. I thought so. Uh, free, free reciprocity, right? Free culture. So, uh, okay. So, um, the uh, the player pipe organ evolved right from the start with the pipe organ. And then it turned, um, when, the, when keyboards on strings started, which was originally a keyboard on a giant lute, which is an insane thing, but when the piano, harpsichord piano, um, there were player pianos very, very early on. And there was actually an improvising player piano that was seen by Jacquard that helped inspire the Jacquard loom, which then inspired Babbage and the programmable calculator, blah, blah, blah. So there, there's, a, there's a lineage that could place this as the first computer. How long have you been playing that? Oh, God, I don't know. I've been playing it for quite a while. And um, I used to go over to Laos to get them, but that's too hard now with the kids and stuff, so I just get them on eBay. And they're not as good, but they're OK. And then um, they don't last that long. Then this is another treat. I'm, I'm not transforming into a walrus, I assure you.
So, <laughs> so this thing, one of the reasons I like bringing this thing around, well, first of all, it's just, it's fun, right? It's a great little instrument. And it's also very tricky. It's a magic trick. These are solid tubes, only one hole at the bottom. How did I do that? It's a trick. And I got the trick from these hoodlum Hungarian gypsy boys hanging out in a train station a long time ago. And the best thing about it is they taught me the trick, but I couldn't learn the name of this thing, and it's undocumented. It's not in any ethnomusicology literature. It's obviously sophisticated. It's not something they could have made themselves. I'm positive. Um, there's, well, you're going to tell me you know what it is? Yeah, it's, it's literally apricot branch for ox the <laughs> Wow. Okay, I have, I've taken it to the Smithsonian curators and stuff. We never could figure it out. Have you actually seen a double thing like this before? Not a double. I have a single. Because it's a thing you do. Wait, you're talking about the Ukrainian thing. No, 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 no. This is Hungarian. Really? Are you, okay, apricot, apricot stick. And, it, like, and it's, it's a, it's a uh, an unhold fipple flute? Okay, I need to talk to you. So, okay, this guy's... You're better than the Wikipedia, my friend. <laughs> See, now that should, he should earn money with that. Yeah. That's good. No, no, no. I've just earned reputation. Yeah. <laughs> okay, well, I hope, I hope that pays your rent. And, um, so now, did you compose that? Oh, no, I'm just screwing around. I mean, yeah, it sounds, this improvised. sounds approximately like what they do. I mean, um, they, these guys were like, um, I think they were stealing purses or something. I mean, they were not. No, but like both of the pieces you just played, were those improvised pieces? Um, yeah, the on second one sounds like what I heard. Uh, the first okay. one is my own style. It doesn't sound anything like Lao music at all. Excellent. Yeah. I love, I love weird instruments. They're the only good user interfaces that have ever been done. So I have tons and tons of instruments at home. I mean, like, there's barely any air for breathing left. Uh, so that's. So, okay. Yeah, Thank hey, you very much. Thanks for listening. <laughs> Thanks, everybody, for coming.